You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm very pleased to introduce you to a man with a tremendous depth of experience in both fundamental science and research translation. Born and raised in South Australia, Stephen Rodder completed his PhD in stem cell biology in 2003, before moving to Cambridge, Massachusetts for a prestigious postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University. On his return to Australia in 2007, Stephen joined BioInnovation SA to help foster a vibrant biotechnology ecosystem for South Australia, a role that saw him connect with many startups including Benefex Biotechnologies and LifePrint Australia, both of which he ultimately led as CEO. Since 2010, Stephen has worked across all facets of the deep tech entrepreneurship ecosystem, from startups and incubators to research institutions and VC funds. He is now the Executive Director of Innovation and Commercial Partnerships at the University of Adelaide, where he helps to ensure the university's fundamental discoveries find a path to market. Dr. Stephen Rodder, welcome to Lab Notes. Yeah, well, it's uh, wonderful to be here, and uh, thank you so much for the invitation to be part of it. So you're currently at the University of Adelaide as an Executive Director for Innovation and Commercial Partners. Can you tell us exactly what that role entails? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a reasonably new approach for the University of Adelaide in in coordinating commercial activity and strategy across the institution and certainly as it cuts across two core pillars of business of the university being research and teaching. So within my branch, I have a strategic projects function where we uh, do a lot of the due diligence and financial analysis and business case development uh, around new initiatives that the university is looking to embark on and present that in a way that provides a lot of the financial uh, analysis, things like uh, net present values and sensitivity analysis, profitability, return on investments, and all those sorts of sensible things that you'd expect to see in a corporate world for businesses embarking on new initiatives. Some of the examples of things around that is um, partnerships that we have with very large research organisations, but also things in teaching and research, um, such as uh, Allied Health, which we've just launched this year here at the University of Adelaide. Um, In addition to that is all of the business development and industry engagement uh, function, which is where we foster partnerships and collaborations with industry. And uh, separate to that is also the commercialization function, which is very much looking to identify uh, new intellectual property and uh, support or put in place a process to drive commercialization outcomes of those pieces of intellectual property through licensing or through the creation of new spin-out companies. Well, it's uh, definitely a broad remit you've got there, Stephen. Uh, yeah, and as I say, it's, um, I think, a, a unique uh, approach that uh, the University of Adelaide has taken. It's uh, probably not super common across other institutions, but coordinating and aggregating that commercial focus, I think it's actually really starting to, to pay dividends. So, Stephen, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a step back now and look at your career more holistically. Although you've travelled the world in the meantime, you're actually back where you started, which was the University of Adelaide. I know you studied stem cell biology as a PhD student. What, what are your recollections of being a student at the University of Adelaide and I guess those first forays into science? Um, you know, scientific research for me was um, a very big unknown. As, as much as I knew I wanted to do science when I started at university, 
working that through and finding myself in a research laboratory doing experiments and having uh, theories or hypotheses that you're then testing through experimentation. And by the time I actually got there, it was kind of, you know, how, how did I find myself here? It wasn't that I started at the first year Bachelor of Science degree knowing I'd end up in that position. But that's, you know, such as the wonder of science, I think, as you are working your way through a Bachelor of Science and Honours and then into a PhD, the power of scientific research um, really does start to shine through. And you learn firsthand you know, when you see lecturers uh, or uh, other professors at universities how passionate and engaged they are in what they're doing. Uh, you can see very clearly how you can fall in love with that and, uh, and the pursuit of, uh, of those new things. The, the thrill was very much in the chase. And so when you are conducting those experiments and you're producing the data that helps to support your ideas, it's, uh, it's, it's really, I think, a, a magical and powerful thing to be part of. So yeah, obviously a love for science there, Stephen, but it's, it's probably worth noting at this point that you also diversified your own education. Towards the end of your PhD, you took on an MBA program as well. In hindsight, looking back at your career, it's probably pretty obvious that these type of qualifications would be required. But at that moment, what made you decide to take on a business qualification in addition to your technical studies? Um, for me, science and, and going through my PhD was an absolute pursuit. It became very clear to me that a, a PhD was your ticket to pretty much anywhere in the world. And so to, to go through and do my PhD and then go on and do a postdoc somewhere um, was absolutely something I wanted to do, but not in the long term of, of pursuing that as a, as a uh, research investigator or professor longer down the track. Um, for me, I had the benefit in my lab when I did my PhD of having the involvement or engagement of a biotech company that was funding a good chunk of work in the lab at that time. Um, they were not funding my work per se, but I still had the opportunity to meet and engage with executives from this company and even present to them. And so that absolutely gave me the insight uh, as to you know, the next step, if you like, uh, of, of research, which is the translation piece. Uh, and, and understanding the fact that you need to take things out of a university and get them into the hands of people that can actually drive them further forward uh, with a commercial focus and the goal of, of delivering new products or services uh, to the market. And so for me, it was really that point of translation. I thought, well, you know, I, I really want to get involved in that. It looks and smells like business, so I better go and do a business degree. And the other element there was really a point of differentiation from my own CV, to be quite honest. I think uh, there's a, a number of people, um, certainly around me at the time, and this is certainly very true from when I was in the US as well, that didn't see themselves continuing a career in research directly. And so, you know, in terms of competition, you know, how do you actually uh, make yourself stand out from the crowd? Uh, it's okay to say you've got the passion and desire to want to do something, but for my mind, it was actually having a piece of paper as a qualification as well that was really, you know, putting me out there saying that uh, Steve Rutter wants to do this and he's serious about it. Yeah, and I guess speaking of differentiation, you mentioned briefly there that you had a postdoc, but perhaps modestly forgot to mention that it was at a very prestigious institution. What did you learn from studying at Harvard and, and how did it change the way you approached your career thereafter? Um, yeah, so, so I guess step one there is, um, is confidence and self-belief. It's easy to say, oh, you come from little old Adelaide University and little old Adelaide and little old Australia. Um, but when you are put into the spotlight of an institution like Harvard and then you are working with colleagues and peers 
Um, the confidence bit there is is really one of self-belief going, you know what, we are actually bloody good here uh, and we are competitive with the high-ranking institutions uh, like Harvard and others. So so for me, it was, you know, here I am immersed in, in the best of the best in the world and, uh, you know, and I can hold my own uh, in that in that very competitive landscape. So that was certainly one piece to it. Um, the other is, um, I think, the power of something that you get in, uh, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, there's a stretch of bitumen there called uh, Massachusetts Avenue. And uh, at one end, you have Harvard, and at the other, you have uh, MIT. And the number of times I would catch the, the red line, the, the subway system there on the T um, between those two, and you would see students debating what was on the front cover of Cell, Nature or Science. Uh, and so the sort of intellectual environment you're in there is uh, just something that you simply do not see replicated anywhere else in the world. Uh, it really was very electric uh, by that nature. Uh, key focal points for me was leveraging the place that I was in in the world to build a network, uh, a network not just of research leaders, but of course people in venture funds and, uh, and commercial entities. A sense of urgency you get from people like that, the sense of drive are really very powerful things. The other part for that is then the translation piece. I mean, Cambridge, Massachusetts is uh, absolutely a, a world-renowned epicenter, especially for biotech. And uh, and you have this huge concentration of, of entrepreneurs, innovators, early-stage angel investors, venture capital, private equity, biotech startups, um, mid-tier pharma companies, big-tier pharma companies. And that, that ecosystem is really quite powerful. And so, again, that for me really reinforced that decision that I was making in wanting to focus on that translation piece and being much more on the commercial side of science. So having been inspired by the vibrant networks of innovation surrounding Harvard and MIT, 2007 saw Stephen return to Australia with the desire to build a similarly vibrant ecosystem in his hometown of Adelaide. To this end, Stephen took on the post of Business Development Manager for BioInnovation SA, a government-backed industry body charged with building South Australia's capabilities in the biotechnology and medtech sectors. The role connected Stephen with a wide range of South Australian innovators and ultimately saw him become a CEO and leader of two biotechnology companies in his own right. I asked Stephen about his experiences with BioInnovation SA and of becoming a professional networker. When I took that role at BioSA, it was really my first foray um, out of the lab and into a business environment and, uh, and again leveraging those things that I picked up in Boston to bring back to the South Australian community. The Real focus of Bioinnovation SA at that time was around the creation of new companies and creation of jobs. And one of the elements that there is a gap uh, in our ecosystem is management capability. And we have lots of innovation, we have lots of great ideas, and money exists um, in the way of equity and, and grants. But the depth of talent around managers to come in and really drive these companies is something that I think we still um, struggle with today. But that was one of the elements that BioSA was looking to fill. And so I came into that, that organisation as a business development manager and very much the view uh, and the discussions that I had uh, with uh, the executive management of that organisation at the time was, you know, this is a stepping stone. You know, you will, you will cut your teeth, you will get some runs on the board, you'll get some experience, um, but eventually, you know, you will step out and become a CEO uh, of a biotech company. 
and sort of long story short, that's exactly where I found myself. I was the chief executive of a um, diagnostics company and the chief executive of a therapeutics company um, off the back of the work that I had started at BioInnovation SA. Yeah, and what was that transition like? Because obviously you've gone from an environment where you're kind of working on these projects but not necessarily responsible for delivering them and then all of a sudden you've got the the expectations and the demands on you to to roll out these products and solutions. Can, can you talk us through those startup experiences and what it was like becoming a CEO? At, um, at BioInnovation SA, we were almost like the advisors, um, you know, almost like consultants uh, to, to diminish it to that. But it was you, you were doing bodies of work with companies or investors or in, um, inventors, uh, and then you hand over essentially the report to them at the end and say, well, this is the roadmap to what you need to do. You, you then very quickly go from that to the other side where you now have to be the person delivering on those plans. Uh, and so stepping out and, and, and running those companies was really, uh, you know, very eye-opening experience and, uh, and certainly drops you into the deep end. The uh, therapeutics company was uh, developing monoclonal antibodies for um, oncology or immunology. Uh, and that was run very much as a uh, virtual company where we were outsourcing a lot of things to contract research organisations. Um, the diagnostics company, on the hand, was uh, much more of a substantial company with uh, staff and uh, buildings and so on. Um, so it was you know, two quite different environments, um, but just certainly wonderful learnings. Yeah, look, definitely great learnings, but also successful from a business perspective. I understand both these companies had, had exits to industry players through trade sales and technology sales. Which, which interested me because your next career steps were back into academia and that might be considered a safe step. I mean, people might expect you to have founded your own biotechnology startup at this moment. So what drew you back to the academic life and to the University of South Australia at this moment in your career? The, uh, one of the big attractors for me in, in going to the University of South Australia at the time was uh, it, it had come from very applied beginnings. Um, so a lot of the, the, the training and education um, base of the university was applied, um, working with industry for industry, and very similarly the research. Uh, the university had had come off a, a large growth um, spurt in, in research intensivity, and uh, and again uh, from a very applied uh, perspective. So for me, coming into that organisation at that time was very much around um, broadening my my technology base. Um, up until that point, my career had been almost exclusively focused on life sciences and biotech. And, uh, and for me, it was about being able to look at how commercial models work uh, in non-biotech areas. You know, biotech is very structured around um, phase one, phase two, phase three, and so on, because it's so heavily regulated. Technologies in other fields uh, are very, very different paths to travel. And so, you know, through my time there, we got to uh, work and support companies like Coda Wireless, um, doing car-to-car uh, -car wireless uh, communications, uh, and of course, start companies like Muriota, Low Earth Orbit Satellite Communications, um, and medical device companies like Ferrinova. Um, and so that sort of experience and, um, uh, and knowledge base there was uh, uh, you know, really quite different to what I'd done in the past. And can I ask specifically about the venture capital aspect of this role? Because I know you're involved in reforming UniSA's in-house venture capital fund. And something that's always interested me about institutionally backed VC funds is that financial return is only part of the story. Part of your remit within that organization is to kind of advance and accelerate university research projects and ensure they find a path to market, even if the financial returns aren't as good as projects you might have been able to find externally. 
How do you balance these dual demands of financial return and advancing university research when you're analysing projects? Yeah, I think this harps back to a, you know, what, what is a university trying to achieve in supporting and investing in the activity of, of tech transfer or commercialization? And the answer to that really is about helping to support brand profile and reputation for the institution. And so the idea of, of identifying intellectual property, um, working with the partners outside of the university to develop that you know, either through licensing or starting spin-out companies is, is really working to try to demonstrate the relevance of work of the research that gets done at the institution. And so, you know, fighting tooth and nail for the last quarter percent on a royalty rate or chunk of equity in a startup company, those numbers, once you've actually got something into market and there might be an exit or a revenue stream that comes from it, really become quite insignificant. And so the focus has to be about working with the right people, um, working with the right companies, working with the right investors um, who are aligned to the goal of taking that product or service to market. And so your, your lens or your focus very much comes back to, uh, I, I describe it as giving things a chance to succeed. Uh, so many groups have proof of concept funds, and that might be where you can apply some money to help um, demonstrate the proof of concept or develop a prototype for something with the aim of de-risking it and making it more commercially attractive. But then having an investment fund on top of that as well uh, is really very, very powerful. Because you're not only just creating the company and pushing it out almost, um, you're actually sitting there rolling your sleeves up and being able to help seed the company with some initial investment. Um, of course, you're looking to try to do all you can to leverage that investment with money that's coming from other investors. And, and again, this really comes back to demonstrating that the university is behind it, it's committed. And so when you can send that signal to the market, it makes it much more approachable for other investors to come in on top of that. Um, the, the expectations of return from the university for those sorts of seed funds, it, it's really very patient capital. The way I presented investment proposals to my board at that time certainly did have a view around potential returns analysis and things like that. Um, but we didn't have a strict hurdle rate uh, or an IRR to achieve before deciding to allocate money into a company. It was really about getting to the point of, does that company or does that technology need our money? Does it need it now? Uh, and having given it to them, are we then going to be able to go on to support the next series of capital raises to add value to that business? Now, the, the fund that we had at UniSA at that time was relatively modest, um, but the reality is that we were able to build quite a sizable portfolio uh, of companies with considerable market valuations. You know, they continue today and they are continuing very, very well. But if it wasn't for that proof of concept fund, if it wasn't for that seed fund, you know, those companies could very well not be in existence today. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a very valuable endeavour. There are other examples around Australia, like UniSeed, uh, but I think they're the exception, not the rule. So hopefully they are rolled out more broadly. Uh, yeah, but if I may just comment on that. So the, the venture landscape in Australia has uh, evolved and matured a lot in recent years. Um, you can look at the success um, that the uh, Medical Research Commercialization Fund, managed by Brandon Capital, have had um, not just in some exits, but also being able to scale the size of their funds. Uh, you mentioned Uniseed, and again, um, very similarly, they've had some great successes, and off, off the back of that comes the ability to raise more money. So, so it's, it's wonderful to see that landscape evolving. 
Um, those funds do have more traditional metrics to perform against. And of course, they've got limited partners that they need to return money to at the end of the day. Um, as I said, the, the fund that we had at uh, UniSA Ventures, it was, uh, it was not a closed-ended fund. The university wasn't sitting there waiting for a handout at the end of each year. Um, you know, we happened to be in a situation of uh, paying a dividend out. That was sort of the happy consequence of success rather than the expectation of, uh, of the university as a return on that money. Yeah, great. And, and obviously, congratulations on the success with UniSA Ventures. Can I move on now to another group you've been a part of, the Hospital Research Foundation or THRF? It's, it's a charitable enterprise and perhaps it doesn't fit the flow of the conversation so much, but very interested to hear your involvement with this organization. You've been both a non-executive director and chairman. What have those roles taught you and, and how would you describe the work of THRF fitting into the rest of your career? Yeah, so uh, the Hospital Research Foundation group um, has been around since the late 60s. Um, and so the, the involvement, uh, my involvement with, um, with um, THRF is, is quite separate and distinct from um, any association with the university. Um, the, the foundation uh, has, has grown considerably over the last um, uh, 10 years in particular and uh, um, broadened to have a number of uh, affiliate brands that sit under the group uh, that we work to support. Uh, and they go across uh, a number of different uh, disease types, so prostate cancer, breast cancer, post-traumatic stress and um, transplantation and um, things like that. The organisation itself has now grown to support over 10 affiliate brands, 50 different areas of research across South Australia's hospitals. And we have uh, grown to become the largest private funder of medical research in the state you sort of make the comment that this question sits outside the flow of the broader interview, but for me, it actually gets to the heart of what is it that gets me out of bed in the morning, and it is that research translation piece. And so whether it's been me as a CEO, me as a fund manager, me as a commercialization person in a university, uh, or me on the board of the Hospital Research Foundation group, the thread through all of those things is translation of research. Through the Hospital Research Foundation group, we, we put a, a huge amount of work into looking at where our funds go, um, how they are delivering benefit to the community, and what the impacts and outcomes of that funding is in those programs, uh, to make sure that we're able to capture the effect of translation. It makes for a great story to go back to our donors, um, who then continue to fund our work, um, because we can demonstrate to them the good work that's been done through their support. So throughout the 2010s, Stephen truly established himself as a leader in the South Australian innovation ecosystem. From the University of South Australia's in-house venture fund to the medical research charity THRF, and also acting as a board member for startup companies including Miriota, Resolve Scientific and Ferranova. And whilst he has remained with THRF, 2019 saw Stephen hand over the reins of many of his other projects to focus on a new role as the University of Adelaide's Executive Director of Innovation and Commercial Research. I asked Stephen about this new role and the priorities for research commercialization at the University of Adelaide. Uh, yeah, so the industry engagement priorities at the University of Adelaide, not surprisingly, aligned very strongly with the industry areas of the uh, state of South Australia. But one of those is, of course, defence, space and cyber, and health and biotech. Um, energy and mining is, of course, one of our areas, um, ag, food and wine, uh, and, of course, creativity and culture. 
the, the beating heart of Adelaide is one of those elements that washes through the strategic plan for the University of Adelaide and our proximity right on the CBD. Um, it's not just a, an opportunity, it's almost a responsibility as I describe it for the University of Adelaide to be a real integral part into the city uh, and the city's culture. So there's even little subtle things that you might notice while walking around the city of Adelaide is that uh, some of the main fences of the University of Adelaide's campus have been coming down over time. And that's purposeful to make sure that there's a, a seamless integration for people in the community to be able to uh, quite literally walk through the campus and immerse themselves in the environment that is the University of Adelaide. The, the sort of intent and purpose for these industry engagement priorities from the university's perspective is really making sure that we can visibly align those areas with our research and make sure that the research that we're investing in falls under those areas. Uh, and we work very closely with leaders of industry and leaders of government that help to shape the direction of those priorities. Uh, and of course, making sure that we've got our courses uh, and even our uh, continuing professional education offerings aligning with those to help serve the community in, in building the workforces of the future. Yeah, that's obviously a wide-ranging remit there, Stephen, covering quite a few industries. Do you have any flagship projects or examples that you're particularly proud of from your time at the University of Adelaide? <laughs> it's like asking which of your children is your favourite. Um, we very much look at working uh, with these different projects as a, as a means or a ways to be able to promote the outcomes and, and impacts uh, of the university's research. The uh, number of companies that we've had and worked with over the course of the last couple of years pleasingly has been growing, uh, and it's very much a purposeful strategy and an area of priority for the university to be much more proactive in supporting translation activities through, through spin-out companies. Amera is a great example, um, not just as a spin-out, but because of the broader base for where that company came from. Um, very much with the the leadership of the Innovise Group and Monash University uh, together with Adelaide. It's been a great partnership to get that company to where it is. Um, the company itself actually focuses on additive manufacturing and 3D printing, and its list of clients, uh, particularly in the defence and aeronautical space, is uh, enviable by all measures uh, in the sector. Um, one of the key strengths of the University of Adelaide is, uh, is in health and biotech, and so it's no surprise uh, that we have a company like GPN Vaccines, GPN closed a $7 million seed round uh, middle of last year, and so that's certainly getting that company off on a great track. Um, and one that we also have in a, in a similar space of biotech is, uh, is Carina Biotech. Carina is developing immuno-oncology products around CAR-T uh, cell therapies uh, and was a, a spin-out of the CRC for cell therapy manufacturing that the University of Adelaide was party to. Uh, there are, of course, other institutions involved in Corinna, including UniSA and the Women's and Children's Hospital, but um, that certainly reflects, I think, the collaborative base for how a CRC operates and, um, and how things can be put on the right track when you uh, do have successful collaborations across institutions. Yeah, we've spoken to a few CRC heads over the course of the Lab Notes podcast, and they always have interesting stories to tell about building and maintaining those networks of collaborations. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you, and it's something you've touched on a couple of times over the course of this interview, is that there's kind of two different avenues for research commercialization. One is to license a technology out to an existing industry partner, and the other is to start up a new company from scratch. I wondered if you could speak to these two options and how you, as an executive in this space, decide which one to follow. Yeah, look, there are, there are many considerations to be made um, around which path to go down. Um, the way I talk about this with my team 
is is working very closely with the inventors and the research leaders on a project right from the very early stage and working through to develop two things. So the first is a technology development plan. And so that's looking at where we are today, uh, where we want to be tomorrow and you know how are we going to get to the point of closing the deal, um, whatever that might look like. And the second is the commercial development plan. And so that's the sorts of things around the business development aspect. You know, who are the top 10 companies operating in this space? What's the investor's perspective on this technology? And, you know, what does uh, the freedom to operate look like? So a lot of very commercially focused questions. The third bit to that is, is a budget and, and working out, okay, if we, if we are where we are today, how much is it going to cost to get to, to closing that deal again, whatever it looks like. So having, having visibility and clarity over the technical and the commercial development plans, you can then sit back and go, well, you know, are we heading into a space where this is a, an improvement on the existing product or an existing process? Or is there really a big area of blue water, a lot of space that we're going into where there are no competitors or, or few competitors or, or the technology base that we have is, is the next generation of an emerging technology? And so if the answer is an incremental improvement, well, it probably makes sense to try to find a party to license that improvement to. But if it is a, a going into a new space, an emerging technology, then there can be a great rationale for being able to put a, a company around that, build a management team and go and raise the money. And it's not necessarily just around um, value creation off the back of that single technology. Um, these things you normally want to be in a situation of having a portfolio of patents um, that might reinforce the technology or, or a whole pipeline of different technologies. Um, you know, we're doing some work at the moment with a particular project in vaccine development, uh, and it's not just one vaccine for one virus. It's, a, it's really a platform that could be used to address vaccine development for a number of different viruses. Um, and so you start to get some critical mass behind that, and it makes sense that you put a company around that, raise some money, and try and go down the clinical development pathway to create value um, knowing that you'll eventually partner with a large pharma somewhere down the track. Um, the other element behind this is, is what is the desire of the inventors? Um, I made my comment before about the partnership. Um, if, if the research leaders and, uh, and inventors of the intellectual property are really uh, keen to be involved in the process, they see great opportunity, there's a, a passion and drive for them to be involved in a company, that can also help sway the decision. Uh, otherwise, if they feel that this is a, a chapter in their in their research life with a, a firm start and a firm end, and they know they're going to move on to the next bit, um, then it might make sense that licensing is is the more appropriate uh, avenue. Um, when you when you license, the bigger thing you have to worry about is is following up with the licensee to make sure that they're meeting their uh, obligations under the development and, and commercialization. Uh, when you have equity, you have to worry about equity. You normally have to worry about nominating someone to the board or working with investors to raise the money and those sorts of things. So the, the sort of workload that comes with both of those options is also um, quite varied, but also an important factor. Yeah, Stephen. And look, with a lot of these projects, the university is obviously following these developments for quite a long period of time, particularly when the startup route is followed. And you might have researchers transitioning from the university to being company members, CEOs or CTOs. You might have mentors who have been part of the company investing and becoming owners of that company. I wonder how the university approaches managing those kind of nuanced and complex relationships in a startup. Because in many ways, it's, it's quite different to the environment, the structured environment that you might get at an institution. 
What is your view on handling those conflicts of interest or, or murky gray areas that do occur within the startup ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, you know, conflict of interest is one of those uh, uh, phrases that's almost got this sort of um, dirty language to it. People tend to shy away from conflicts of interest and, and, uh, and, and almost sweep them under the carpet insofar as they're too hard basket. And I think the, uh, the point we're trying to get to really is contrary to that. And, and that's around a, a culture of transparency. Conflicts of interest are not necessarily bad things. Um, they're only bad when they're not uh, called out, identified and managed. And so more often than not, when conflicts of interest exist, um, there are uh, mechanisms that can be put in place to help um, manage them in a, in a transparent and appropriate way. The um, element of, of being uh, transparent and, and, uh, and having the researchers involved in the process going forward uh, is really very, very important for the quite literally hundreds of deals that I would have structured. Not one has been done without the involvement of the researchers who have been behind the, the invention. If you're talking to licensees, you know, they're not just looking at the patent, they're looking at the researchers behind it because they're going to have to be involved in the tech transfer process, actually handing that knowledge over to the licensee um, or the continued development of that technology, um, what might be through grants or, or further contract R&D. Um, similarly, when you're talking to investors, they're not looking at investing in a company because I'm standing in front of them. You know, they're looking at investing in a company because of the competence, expertise, and capability of the research team behind the IP. And so the journey that you go on with these things, it has to be a partnership. It has to be side-by-side -side research leaders with, with the commercialization function to, to drive these outcomes. Um, and, and that involvement of the researchers is really what drives some of the revenue opportunities uh, for the involvement of these companies, which does come back to the university to fund further research. Look, I've got one more question around the process of research commercialization, and it kind of comes to the term of academic freedom. As I'm sure you're aware, academics have quite a lot of liberty in terms of new academic collaborations they establish, how those relationships are managed, and how they spend their time and energy. And I think that bleeds across a lot, where researchers expect the same degree of freedom in setting up commercial relationships and establishing these kinds of projects. I wonder how much pushback you get from researchers in terms of the involvement of the professional staff within a commercial research unit and how you manage that expectation of freedom from the academic staff with the legal and commercial responsibilities of the university. Yeah, so one of the elements here is, is um, under uh, employment agreements and common law, intellectual property developed by an employee is owned by the employer um, in, in the normal sense. And so in that regard, commercialization offices at universities almost have the monopoly over intellectual property developed there. Um, so, you know, where, where do academics and research leaders get frustrated by this process? I think they get frustrated predominantly by poor communication and where they feel aggrieved where something hasn't been done to the best of its um, possibility. Our approach here, and you know, we are very much investing in working together side by side with research leaders about the, the opportunity and the journey going forward, being clear and transparent about expectations, you know, what it is that they can expect of us, but also what we need of them. This is not at all a situation where an inventor registers a, an invention disclosure with our office and sits there waiting for the royalty check somewhere down the track. You know, we can't do this process without their involvement and without their commitment to the process. 
Now, in terms of actually picking up a project and, and wanting to run with it and investing in that project, there's a, a good chunk of due diligence that we do behind the scenes before we file a provisional patent or invest some proof of concept funds into these projects. Uh, and that is very much looking at the prior art. Um, quite often we get the phone call, which is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm presenting at a conference tomorrow or I've just had a manuscript accepted, we need to file a patent. These sorts of uh, rushes and urgent situations don't really help anyone because you're now not applying strategy to the process or the decisions. The earlier those conversations can happen, the better uh, to make sure that everyone's aligned in what we're trying to do. And uh, again, there's clarity and transparency. Um, we're looking at prior art. We're looking at freedom to operate. Is this technology actually uh, addressing an unmet market need? You know, is there a customer for this? And so these are the sorts of questions we ask and try to answer as best we can before making those decisions to invest. And so if we, if we decide to not invest, then the process is simply to go back to the creators, the inventors. And it's not just no thanks, but no thanks. I always describe this as saying there's value-added no. We've elected to not take this project on because of, and actually outline to them the level and depth of due diligence that's been done. And that's not just to defend the decision. It's actually done to try to help inform the future direction of their research. Because from that, we hope that they can then use that information to help influence future research projects that then might result in IP that, that does have commercial value or commercial application. Um, of course, under the IP policy of the university, and this is common across institutions, is that uh, if the university elects to not take up uh, some intellectual property, then the inventors themselves are in a position of being able to, uh, to take that on and fund it themselves. Um, and so that's always uh, a possibility. The, the, the breadth of people we work with is, is really quite interesting. You get very, very entrepreneurial um, professors, and they're the kind of people we very much welcome to be engaged with because you know, they are driven, they are motivated, they, they want to see outcomes of their research translated. And of course, from an economic return perspective, there's something that comes back to them as well. Um, there, there's another group where they haven't done it before, they've not engaged with commercialization, so it's a new experience. This group can often be early career or mid-career mid research leaders. Uh, so they're going to be the emerging leaders of the future uh, and hopefully the, the future entrepreneurial professors that have done it once or twice, have had good experiences and want to come back to do it uh, again and again. Uh, and then there's, there's uh, um, some that just don't want to engage at all and, and that's fine, but that's uh, just the um, realization of the partnership. <clears throat> if they don't want to be part of the process, then uh, it doesn't matter how much money we might put into something, it's not going to go anywhere. Well, great, Stephen. It's, it's been an amazing chat. Thank you so much for your time. I'd like to end on one question, which is to ask you for some advice to entrepreneurial researchers. I know you've tackled this from so many angles as a researcher yourself, in venture capital, on sitting on boards, and now with the university. What would be your, your single biggest piece of advice for a researcher or a young entrepreneur looking to get into this science translation and technology translation space? Um, look, there's um, I take the liberty of many pieces of advice. Um, I think one of the, the key bits is, is understanding that the path will take many turns. Um, they won't all be bad, um, but there there is very rarely a straight line to success. So there's a, an ability, or sorry, a need to be flexible uh, and, and agile in response to those sorts of things. The other is making sure that you surround yourself and, and work with the right people. There's uh, no shortage of people who would want to give you advice, but again, it comes down to the partnership. It's the team. Everyone has to work with each other and be aligned in what's trying to be achieved. And so the power of people in all this can never be underestimated. 
I think probably one of the most important uh, elements, though, is expectations. So managing your own expectations and the expectations of the people you're working around. This is it's very rarely uh, a straight line or an easy process. There are many things that need to be done. Things will take longer than you expect. Things will cost more than you expect. Um, and so it's those, those expectations uh, that need to be managed on both sides. And I think the, uh, the, the outcomes that you can drive can be really uh, very, very exciting and sensational. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of hard work from a lot of different people. <laughs> well, yes. And I guess we wish you many long journeys to come with new inventors and new inventions with the University of Adelaide. Thanks so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. No, look, thank you very much for having me. It's been a really good conversation and uh, it's fantastic to be part of it. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.